Blog Talk Radio. I have an emergency. What is your location? Gave um, 
the children of Israel that we adopted as part of our induction induction into the kingdom of God, uh, the, the law that was our schoolmaster to bring us to Christ, is there for, um, it doesn't work on a, out of a premise of love. It just works basically out of a premise of fear and threat. If you don't do this, then this and this and this is going to happen. And that's kind of the whole basis of the Old Testament in Deuteronomy 28, 27 and 28. If you will follow me, then I will bless you. If you don't follow me, then this will happen. And you think, wow, God is really, you know, kind of a bullheaded, you know, dictator that he should have to have it always his way or he won't bless us. But that's not the complete story that's really taken out of context because God is love. God is mercy. God is justice. But at the same time, you know, we have an enemy. And if we don't put that enemy and the understanding of the devil into the context of the whole system, then it doesn't make sense that God could both be nice and not nice. He's either, he's good and bad. He's, he's mad and he's happy. He's, you know, he blesses and he curses. How does he do that? How does he make calamity? You know, he brings forth peace and yet brings calamity on everybody. Well, you can't figure that out if you don't put in the context that there's something, someone else behind the scenes who's also working within God's system to mess up things and to make it difficult um, for all of us. So let's continue. We'll get to put the right pieces in. You know, you have to say, if you're going to do a puzzle, you got to make sure you got a puzzle that doesn't have mixed pieces. You got to have all one puzzle or you're going to have pieces you're going to be trying to put in the picture that don't fit, or you may have pieces that are missing, and so therefore you never get the whole picture. So if we put the devil in the equation, then we can understand where God has to say, guys, here's, up. here's what happens. If you don't listen to me, the devil's going to come to the court, and he's going to petition for your judgment. He's going to petition for the right to curse you, to mess with you, to hurt you. And so therefore, my only recourse to him or response to him is that I can I can verify that you are continuing to walk within the agreements uh, and compliance obedience if you will to what we have set up as a, as a perimeter of safety so when we're keeping the law as in the old testament they were keeping the law satan didn't have anything on them jesus said when he was going to the cross satan has nothing on me there was no sin there there was nothing that Satan could legitimately or legally take Jesus to court for and demand his um, his execution. So Jesus' death on the cross was purely and completely um, set up within the context of, of what was illegal. It wasn't legal for Satan to kill him. Although that was his um, panic attack. I, yeah, Satan had a panic attack. He had to get rid of Jesus. And he couldn't get Jesus to sin, so he ultimately freaked out and killed him. Um not to minimize what happened, but that's what it was. It was his last, it, it was the, the last opportunity. He couldn't have, he wouldn't have any more opportunities. He tried to stop Jesus even from getting here. In the whole long story of that, we've talked about the messing up of the DNA and the, in the, you know, the, the persecution of the chosen people and then trying to get Jesus himself to sin, etc. But in heaven, the standard is love and kindness. And so when God has to bring forth justice, he's doing it not because he wants to, but because he has to. So the court of heaven is where Jesus, and as the righteous judge, will judge the earth. But it's also a place where we can look for restoration and the recovery of things that have been lost and the things that are not fair. You know, a lot of times people today are suffering um, for righteousness' sake, and how will that ever be fair when, when we're killed all the day long and taken as sheep to the slaughter if there isn't a place where that is finally vindicated and um, rewarded that diligent um, loyalty towards the Lord God. So when we're looking at the concepts of justice and law, um, we also have to understand, again, as said in the Bible, that the law itself could not justify anyone. It couldn't make you right. It's just like you'd expect um, the speeder would expect the speed limit to justify him. That's not possible. The speed limit sign is going to indict him rather than justify him, unless, of course, he was within the speed limit, and then he is justified. So when we look for justice in the court of, of law, in the human courts, um, a lot of times we have judges that are corrupt. And um, But in heaven, there is no corruption. It is complete. God knows the heart. He knows the situation. He knows the background. He knows the context. 
He knows the motives. He knows everything. Um, so that's what happens. Now, in the court of heaven, um, we also must know that justification and pardon are part of that court system. And they come as a free gift. And that is called, we call that gift forgiveness. Whosoever will call upon the name of the Lord, confess his sins. You know, God did not make this real difficult. He didn't make this impossible. He didn't ask us to do something that no one could do. He actually set it up so that we could, um, if we were willing, we could actually receive from him love, pardon, forgiveness, mercy. And in that receiving of that, we would then be justified in spite of what the enemy had done to accuse us, set us up, deceive us, and charge us, uh, condemn us uh, uh, before the court of heaven. So simple. The, the receiving of justice in God's court is simply a humbling of ourselves, surrendering to him and believing his promise, believing that he's good, believing he is going to do and has done and is doing what he promised he will do. But until the, the final court is seated, which is talked about in Daniel, Satan continues to dispute our, our every position, our every action. Basically, he's setting us up, tricking us into making uh, bad choices, if you will, sinning, uh, transgressing the law, which is the definition of sin. So then he can take that transgression of the law up to the high court of heaven and present it to God as evidence uh, to build his case against us in the claim that he is making that we're unfit for heaven or that we need to be judged or we need to be um, uh, indicted. Uh, and part of the, the judgment Satan brings is what I call demonic judgments are things that have to do with um, guilt, condemnation, not deserving, feeling unworthy. And when he can get us to agree with those lies, he can actually take away the blessings of God, take away the peace of God and bring in it. So therefore, with a practical application, a lot of people are suffering in pain, are actually suffering under demonic judgments. And because they cannot forgive themselves, they will not allow themselves to receive the forgiveness that the high court of heaven has already um, given them. But you have to receive that forgiveness. Jesus died in our place. And so therefore, receiving from God takes a bit of humbling, surrendering, acknowledging our sin, acknowledging his freedom, his goodness, and that God is our uh, vindicator. He's our salvation. He, Jesus is our righteousness. So when the devil comes and accuses you of not being righteous or not good enough, it's nothing has nothing to do with being worthy of love because love cannot be earned. And it has nothing to do with being good enough because the devil will never see us as good enough. So what it has to do with is simply surrendering to the promise of God and receiving the forgiveness of God. Because, as the word says in Romans chapter 3, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. In other words, all have been accused, and the enemy would accuse us of being guilty, but God is saying all must give an account. And the enemy is requiring us to all personally give an account of our soul, our self, our life, how we spend our time, our allegiances, our motives, our actions. And base, the only way we can really um, refute that judgment of the evil one is to continue on in following Jesus Christ and making a declaration, humbling ourselves, receiving the grace of God, walking in that grace, um, and then we are we will be eligible, as all are eligible really to be acquitted in Jesus Christ if they are so willing. But it's it's based again on who sort of will and why is that? Because God is a God of love and he's not gonna you know, God does not use fear tactics to save people. Churches do that. People do that. You're going to go to hell if you don't accept Jesus. God is not looking for, you know, just people to fill his house. He's looking for a family. He's looking for love. He's looking for a bride. He's looking for someone who's going to enter into that matrimonial relationship, if you will, because they want to. How many people are, how many weddings are you going to this June that people are getting married because they're afraid? They better marry that person or they're going to, you know, be in trouble. I think a lot of them marry and are truly afraid and for that reason do marry and you can know that those marriages are not going to be built in love or peace and they're probably not going to last um those are very uh, incredibly devastating and sad tragedies so but god is building his family based on love and so it's got to be a whosoever will but until that final court 
this, the court of heaven is seated. The court of heaven is in operation, is in session all the time right now, but actually as we would recognize it as being on the other side of it, so to speak, sitting in the jury box, which we're not yet, we come in as the accused. And Satan, the accuser, accuses us of being guilty of what he actually has done. And so when we recognize that, we can put the devil in his place and say, you know what, um, I present my case before the high court of heaven in the name of Jesus Christ, my advocate, who is my righteousness. And I come before you, Lord God, and I declare that the devil deceived me. He is the guilty one. I got tricked. You are right. Your word is right. Your, your, your law of love is true. And I am with you. I agree with you. And so therefore I petition the high court, even as I release myself, which would be forgiving yourself, or you release someone else, which means forgiving them. I release them from my judgment. So you're not going to judge yourself. You're not putting yourself in the place of judge, but you're coming to God as the righteous judge and asking him to judge your, your case and to set you free from the devil's accusations. Then you can also petition the high court after you've forgiven to restore. Now, if you're judging or forgiving another person, you can ask God to restore unto them the revelation of Jesus Christ and his peace so that they can, um, you know, know the revelation, walk in peace, walk in salvation, and no longer be used by the enemy as an instrument of unrighteousness. And you can also, and this is what a lot of people forget, you can also ask God to restore unto you everything that the the uh, canker worm has eaten, all the things that have been stolen from you, your reputation, your peace, your family, your relationships, um, that can all be petitioned to be restored. And the court of heaven is righteous and just. And as God, re, you know, that's really important. I think people, they're so able or willing or content or ignorant and, and therefore just accept living in a place where injustices continually surround them. And, you know, it's like when it rains, it pours and you start to feel bad and things go wrong. And then the next thing goes wrong and everything's going wrong. And pretty soon nothing's going right. And it's actually what you're saying is you're actually cursing yourself and allowing the perpetuation of the judgments of the evil one. When in fact you should say, no, no, stop. No, that's it. You're not going to do that to me, devil. I'm taking this to heaven. I'm taking this to God. I'm, you know, how we, when we're kids, we take our injustices, the offenses of our siblings. We take, we go tattle. We tell our parent, whatever. Sometimes we get help. Sometimes we don't. But obviously, this is the same scenario, um, just on a higher level of legality. The devil is like the, the uh, hater of the children of God. So Satan, we know, goes to and fro in the earth and seeking whom he may devour, what sins he may record, what things he may bring against the righteous. And he did not just do that with Job. But as a matter of fact, the devil now uses the very law that God gave us to press charges against us for transgressing the law. That is why it became such a big deal for God in the New Testament to switch everything over to grace, mercy, truth, and Jesus Christ. So now Jesus Christ is our righteousness. The law couldn't make us righteous anyway. And when we mix law and grace, even as believers, New Testament followers of Jesus, we still have left the door open for the enemy to come in through the law and setting us up to transgress the law to bring a case against us before the high court of heaven. If we would really understand what grace, mercy, and forgiveness means, we would know that as Christians, as believers, we still are going to be tricked into sinning. That's going to happen because the devil is the tempter. But at the same time, if we knew and lived and, abide, and would abide in the, the revelation of the absolute knowing that Jesus Christ is my righteousness and I got tricked, we could immediately go before God and those charges Satan is pressing against us, God would drop the charges because Jesus Christ is our righteousness. So, But, however, if we continue to think we have to somehow fulfill the law, be good and keep the law or we're not going to make God happy, we're still living in confusion. We're still living under the misunderstanding that somehow God is mean and mad if I don't keep the law. We still haven't put the devil in the equation properly. As in the Old Testament, God just, he just gave them the basics, like don't stick your finger in the light socket. He didn't tell them why. Now he's telling us why. And um, the understanding is that the devil is there to accuse us. So if you break the law, which we will when we sin, we, trick, we get tricked, we transgress, we, we, we gossip, we 
we judge, we get bitter, we get mad, we judge God, we judge others, we do something that is against the law of love, then we need to confess that as a sin and ask God to forgive us. And in the confession of that, you're actually coming out of agreement you've made with with the law. And Satan has nothing on you if he can't get you to agree with it. You know, if God doesn't agree with the devil's lie, if the devil comes to God and lies to him about you, God isn't agreeing with it. But if you agree with it, or the devil's got you pricked into believing, I'm bad, I'm stupid, I'm no good, I had this coming, then he wins the case. I mean, temporarily, God has got to give it to him because, but even though God knows the truth, God is still having to work with you so that you will know the truth. Um, so far, I hope this is making sense. You can give us a call at 347-215-8051. I know a lot of people don't really think about their lives in this great a depth, you know, the court of heaven, the devil, God, uh, taking the devil to court, God on trial. But God is on trial, actually, in our hearts every day. So the truth is, uh, if we understand the truth, which Jesus said will set us free, that forgiveness has been established. Um, and we can be, and we actually are seated re- even now with Christ in heavenly places through that salvation through that agreement and soon we will be seated actually in the in the actual court as daniel talks about so the only thing left to do now is to believe what god said and to um you know walk in that live on a consistent ever can continually consistent in that belief and walk in the faith in faith believing that god's promises are true um knowing that we've been delivered um, and being able to even now rejoice in the victorious and finished work of Jesus, law of love and truth has now been reinstated in the in the hearts of those who love him. He says he, plant, he places his law in our hearts. So the only thing left here to decide is your decision. Your critical decision, your final de- destiny is going to be determined by whose report you believe. So, Let's look at the scripture for a minute because this is very interesting. Now we're going to look at some hard scriptures that have to do with, now that we understand the context of heaven, and that was kind of a long review, but I think some of you, if you want another look at it, you can listen to last week's broadcast. In Romans 9, we're reading um, about, some. Paul is talking about Romans 9.1, about Christ, um, his worry, his, his concern, about Jesus, uh, not Jesus, Paul's concern, great sorrow and continual grief in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Paul was saying, you know, if I could, I would die in their place. I would give up my eternal salvation so that they would be saved. That's a pretty, that's a pretty huge act of love to say, I'd be willing to go to hell for you. But that's basically what he was saying. And then he kind of, um, had a, he, then he began to look at this thing. Um, but it is not that the word of God has taken no effect, for they are not all Israel who are of Israel, in other words. Nor are they all children, because they are the seed of Abraham. But in Isaac your seed shall be called. So he's seeing that not just because they are, call themselves Jews or of descendants of Abraham, Abraham had more than one son, actually. But the promise came to the son um, Isaac. Now let's look at this for a second here. And this is kind of an interesting scripture. Uh, and it really, really um, points to the fact that there is a war or a battle, a debate, a battle. Maybe it's a war. Maybe it's a court scene where Satan and God are constantly moving um, God on our behalf, Satan against us. But listen to this. In uh, Romans chapter 9, we'll start with verse um, eight. That is, those who are the children of the flesh are not the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as the seed. For in, for this is the word of promise. Now this is what God says, quote, At this time I will come, and Sarah shall have a son. And not only this, but when Rebekah also had conceived by one man, even by father, our father Isaac. So there was, there was, Isaac, and then there was Rebecca. Now, Rebecca, let's go back to Isaac for a second. If you look up in the the actual story of this um, in Exodus, no Genesis, sorry Genesis twenty five twenty one, 
you will find that, of course, we know that um, Sarah was barren for a long time. And she had to, God, uh, Abraham had to believe God for 25 years for this Isaac to come. But also, um, Rebecca, in Genesis 25, 21, was also barren. Here she's married to Isaac, the carrier of the promise, the carrier of the seed, and she can't get pregnant. And you're saying, what's this all about? Why is God so resistant to his own will? What's wrong with him? Why did they wait? And you know how long they waited? They got married when they were, I think they waited 20 years for this child. If I did the math the other day, you'll have to forgive me. I don't have my numbers right with me. Um, I think Isaac got married when he was 40. And it took 20 years, 20 years. So she actually had this baby when she was approximately, if she was maybe a little younger than him, I don't know, maybe in her 50s or her 60s. So he had to pray for her. Let's go to Genesis 25, 21. I'll read it real quick. Because it's kind of interesting. Why would God do this? Why would he make this so hard? Why would he make doing the will of God so hard? A lot of you are doing the will of God, and it's so not happening. It's so hard. Um, let's see, hold on. Oops, I'm in Exodus. That's not going to help me out much. You guys ever have to do that? Find one verse and can't find the other verse and don't know what book you're in? Okay, Genesis 25. All right, here we go. 21. Oh, Isaac had waited for God to pick his bride for him. That was cool. Um, Now, Isaac pleaded with the Lord for his wife. Because she was barren, and the Lord granted his plea, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. But the children struggled together within her, and she said, If all is well, why am I this way? So she went to inquire of the Lord, and the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb. Two peoples shall be separated from your body. One people shall be stronger than the other, and the other shall serve the younger. So we know the days were fulfilled, the birth happened the twins came out the first who came out was red he was like a hairy garment all over his name was Esau afterwards his brother came out his hand took a hold of Esau's heel so that his name was called Jacob he didn't wait five seconds he was right on his brother's heel Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them so he married her at 40 he was 60 that's the that's the 20 years okay so why first of all did God want to delay? Did he forget about them? Um, Had he given up? No. I say the devil was there in the court of heaven petitioning God to delay this matter, to test Isaac, to see if Isaac would do what Abraham go off and have another son by another woman. Well, Isaac passed that test. He didn't do that. So then I believe the devil petitioned the high court again as he did to test Job. The devil's always got a deal going on here. And it's not that God is making deals with the devil. But what happens is God must be faithful and he must be just even with the devil in his making petitions. So what, what the devil said, okay, all right, the son can be born. Let's, let's, uh, but here's the deal now. Here's the deal. I get to have a guy too. So we're going to put twins in the womb. Okay. And my guy gets to come out first. That would be Esau. Now, we're not saying that Esau went to hell. We're just saying that he was the one Satan was going to use as his pawn to make moves in the game. So it seems like Satan and God always got pieces on the board, don't they? Um, and so, sure enough, um, now, it's interesting going back to Romans. He says, on verse 9 and 10, uh, 10, And not only this, but when Rebecca also had conceived by one man, even by her father Isaac, for the children not being not yet born or having done any good or evil, listen to that. The kids hadn't done anything good or bad to deserve or not deserve anything that they were going to get. That the purposes of God, according to election, might stand, not of works, but of him who calls. It was said to her, the older shall serve the younger. We just read that. So going back, it wasn't anything the boys had done or not done, good or evil. That, but God wanted to show, in okay, so the devil's going to do something here. God's going to do something here. The devil's going to say, I get my man. And he is going to try, and he's going to make it difficult. And 
God says, okay, but then I get to show them this, that I will choose the younger. And my whole program goes forward through grace and election, not through works. So, so even in the beginning, everything was based on the promise. God always went back to the promises, the word he was keeping because it was his word, not upon the behavior so much of the people. The only caveat to that was, would the people believe his word? That's the key. Do you believe what God says? If you believe what God says, then, then follow him. That's simple. Do what he does. Do what he did. Do what he would do. And so um, this election might stand not of works, but of him who calls. So God calls. And who does he call? Well, Romans 8 says, um, and let's see, it says he calls. I'll go back to it. Romans eight twenty nine, For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son that he might be the firstborn among many brethren, and whom he predestined, who was that? Everybody. These he also called. So is God picking a few out here to be saved and the rest he doesn't care about? No. He, he knew about everybody. He, everybody he created, he knew about ahead of time. Everybody he created, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. That's what he had in mind. That was the idea. That was what he wanted, to be made like Jesus, and who did he call then? Everybody he foreknew, everybody he predestined to be made like Jesus, those he, he also called. Whom he called, these he also justified. Now notice at that point of between calling and justifying, you have to answer the call. The call is the first point where we can do some acting. You know, the first the being foreknown by God, that was his idea. We didn't know anything about that. Being predestined by God, that was his idea. Being conformed to the image of his son, that was his idea. He now makes it known to us through the call. Here, guys, here's your option. Do you want to believe me or not? So at the point of the call is the point of the call. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord, because we're calling to him because he called to us. It's like finding each other in the midst of this very messy, dark, evil, constricted, lied about world. So he called us, we answered, and then he was able to justify us, and whom he justified, these he also glorified. So, you see, the process in the middle of all that, we get to make a, a choice move to, call, to answer the call. So now let's go back to Romans 9. If I'm losing you, just, just fasten your seatbelt. Let's go. All right. So, he says to her, we're going back to Romans 9, verse 12, we just read, and it was said to her that the younger will serve the young, the, old, the older will serve the younger. As is written, now listen to this. This will throw your socks off. Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. Now this is very interesting. I don't know why they named Jacob Jacob, which means deceiver, supplanter. Here he's going to be Israel, the prince of God, and he starts out with the name deceiver. Oh my goodness. And he hasn't even done anything yet. But it was kind of a foreshadowing of what he was going to do. Because everybody up there in heaven knew, and I'm thinking the devil probably knew too, that Jacob was going to deceive his brother Esau with a bowl of soup, actually taking advantage of Esau, who was weak-willed and hungry and was all about his stomach and going to die if he didn't get something to eat right then, and despised his birthright, didn't think that much of it, because what's good is it going to be to me if I'm dead? So he traded his birthright. That is, I mean, a big deal. That is like the inheritance. That's like you get everything. The second kid gets nothing. We have a lot of old-fashioned, old-world kind of concepts like that, too. The oldest son inherits everything, and the rest of them get squat. You know, that's not God. And But nonetheless, this is what was going on. And for and, and Esau despised that. He didn't think, well, he wasn't looking forward to He wasn't looking thinking ahead. Actually, a lot of people live like that. They live for the bowl of soup they're wanting right now, and they forget about the future, and that's why we have a lot of people who are willing to sell their birthright, sell, a, give away their option to salvation, to have a quick fling with the devil. You know, you pay hard, you pay heavy, you pay forever when you deal with the devil because he never gets done requiring the payment. The, you never paid in full with the devil. He's just always pulling it out of you. So, but God says, I hate it. Jacob, I have hate. I, Jacob, I have loved, but Esau, I've hated. Now, obviously, God does not hate Esau. Esau didn't even do anything yet. It's written, I'm not sure, uh, you know, the, the term for this, but in 
Hebrew, there are a lot of, if you don't hate your father and your mother, you cannot, you're not worthy of me. That, that word hatred is like a comparison word. It's not used like we use the word, I hate you and I wish you were dead and I wish I could be the one to kill you. Nothing like that. It's more in comparison. Um, so he loved, God loved the deceiver because God knew that the deceiver was his man. He was the one who ultimately would um, follow him and he was the one who God gave the vision to, the vision of the angels going up and down the ladder to heaven that night. He slept under a portal, believe it or not. Uh, what shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? Well, that's a good question. If God's hating somebody, made him, now he hates him, this seems a little um, insane to me. Worse than, you know, yeah, insane. God's going to have mercy on some and hate some. What kind of God is that? I can't deal with a God like that. That's, But that is not who he is. That is what the enemy wants us to think he is. So who's asking the question? Paul is asking the question simply so he can answer the question. Because, you know, a lot of people don't ask questions. And if you don't ask the right question, you can't get the right answer. And people don't think. They just don't think. They read their Bible. How many times have we all read through these scriptures and we just uh, don't get it? Too complicated. Too hard too condemning, too da-da-da, whatever. I can't get it. I'll go read, you know, my famous, my favorite People magazine or the latest gossip column or the latest whatever. All right. Then we say, Paul answers his own question. Certainly not. Is there unrighteousness with God? Certainly not. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whomever I will have compassion. So then, it is not of him who wills, nor of him who runs, but of God who shows mercy. Again, we see this concept of it's not about works or willpower. It's not about running and winning. It's about God who shows mercy. God is a father to the fatherless. God is faithful and to the downhearted. He puts a solitary in families. Um, he's not willing that any should perish. Now we have an example. Uh, verse 17, for the scripture says to Pharaoh, even, quote, even for this same purpose, I have raised you up that I might show my power in you and that my name might be declared in all the earth. So we see that Pharaoh was an instrument Satan was using to keep, stop, pre- prevent the children of Israel from getting out of Egypt. He had them all chained up in his camp. They were all being enslaved, beaten, tortured, uh, killed annihilated genocide was going on i mean all kinds of things was were happening and satan thought if i can just keep them all locked up that's the whole seed that's the whole kit and caboodle uh jacob came down with his 70 people in his family and now there's many a million probably but i have them all and not one of them has escaped but god sent a deliverer moses of course to lead a million people into to escape now it's interesting i suppose god could have done it another way he could have had one man escape, and that would have been the man that would carry the, the seed. But he didn't. He wanted all his people free. And so Pharaoh was Satan's pawn instrument to obstruct the justice, the mercy, the will, the purposes of God. Then in verse, um, so because God is saying to, to Pharaoh, you are you're serving my purpose, then I, I've raised you up that I might show my power in you. You know, the plagues. To knock down all the idol gods of, of Egypt, every one of them had a plague named after him, so to speak. There, every one of the plagues was in connection with one of the gods they worship: frogs, lice, etc. Um, and so, the next verse is: So then, it is not of him who wills, nor of him who runs, but of God who shows mercy. Again, we're seeing, like I just said, the context of God is showing mercy in the midst of of what the devil is trying to do. For the scripture says to Pharaoh. Um, therefore, he has mercy on whom he wills, and whom he wills he hardens. What you, you will say to me then, why does he still find fault? Or who has resisted his will? I mean, if God's going to harden you, you're going to be hardened. If God's going to forgive you, you're going to be forgiven. But actually not. In the, in this true, you know, it's true that this is what happened. But people, Pharaoh, everybody, we all have a free will. We can say no to the devil. We can say yes to God. But he says, indeed, who are you, O man? Who are you to reply against 
God. Will the thing formed say to him who formed it, Why have you made me thus? Does not the potter have power over the clay from the same lump to make one vessel for honor and another for dishonor? What if God, wanting to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, and that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy, which he had prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he called not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. So going back, he's talking about, he's using an analogy here of a potter who makes vessels, some he wants to use to drink out of and some he wants to use to carry out the garbage. So why would God harden the hearts of one of his own creatures like a pharaoh? Um, There must be an explanation that protects the verity, the truthfulness and the goodness of God at all times that would explain his decision to act against one of his own creatures. Um, Now, um, this is an interesting thing. The potter makes a pot, but the pot does not have a will. This is the difference. We have a free will. This pot that's on the potter's wheel, that would be you or me. We have a, we have a, a, a part to play in this being coming, as he calls, talks about later, willing vessels, yielded vessels, vessels fit for the master's use, vessels in his hand that he can use to pour out blessing and goodness. So, the 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 um so the dis, this uh, the decision does not come down to like I said willpower or works of God who shows mercy and this is part of it God again demonstrates it's by election it's by grace it's by mercy and yet because we have a free will it is also called we are in context we are in 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 a relationship this isn't like we're an inat, inanimate object that God can move around um. The question of Pharaoh's being hardened is really twofold. Is Pharaoh, first of all, question, is Pharaoh really one of God's human children? Is he? All of their gods over there, if you look, they had crossed kinds, and we have bird heads on men's bodies, and we're not quite sure what kind of gods we're looking at. Or can there be people out there who look like they're human, act like human, are in, but also Pharaoh called himself a god, Ra, the god. And so the sun god, the god, whatever. So was he human? But, or was it an incarnation of Satan? I don't know. Could have been. Um, that was, you know, looked like he was, um, you know, human and did human things, you know. But he also had usurped and taken on the position of a god. Therefore, God would deal with him more as a god than as a human. So there you have it. If he's going to play God and do this to my people, then I'll treat him like a lesser God and I'll deal with him as a God and not as a human. Um, And those lesser gods, of course, demons will be and are going to be thrown into the lake of fire. Um, Because, look at this, can it be um, that we could literally have been, he could have been corrupted where the image of God had been corrupted in him? And or can this happen to people or situations where they are no longer what they were first intended to be or believed to be? For example, uh, we see this kind of thing happening in nature, the corruption and the decay, which is by the law, by the way, a law of thermodynamics, that everything is getting less and less, not more and more. Uh, evolution is, is the, the law of what we see called thermodynamics. Everything wears out, falls apart and rusts away is contrary to the law of evolution, which says everything is, is adapting and through mutations is getting better and more sophisticated. If you look at it, we're actually deteriorating. Our, our DNA, our, our abilities are all... De- yeah, we think we're smarter because the technological demons have assisted us now in actually playing in our minds and hearts and giving us inspirations. But anyway, back to this. Um, but this corruption, for example, things can get rusty, fall apart, get broken and become only a shell or a remnant of what they were originally created to be. Uh, and in that, they can no longer function um, in what they were created to be. Um, even if they want it, they want it, or, or the working of it to be restored. For example, like, just think of a, just think of a, um, I know you don't, we don't use these anymore, but in the old days, they had these tin um, dippers, 
where they would dip the water out of the bucket so they could drink their water, you know, because they didn't have pumps and running water. And that dipper created to be a dipper to lift water up to your mouth so you could drink. That tin dipper eventually rusted, deteriorated, and got holes in it and could no longer be used for the the function, the purpose to which it was created. And eventually it fell apart into the place where it lost its complete identity. It was decomposed. It was no longer a dipper. And so I think some of this, the, the, the image of the dipper, the service and function of the dipper was corrupted by thermodynamics to the point where it wasn't recognizable or usable anymore. And I believe the corrupting of the image in us, the image of God in us can also happen so that we are no longer recognizable, usable, or functioning as the sons and daughters of God. We see this happening in a, in a few people. We Pharaoh, one example, of course. Nimrod was another example of this. And um, Judas also appeared to be a vessel um, that was, that you know, where the image was corrupted. His, just think of it, Judas had been given such a privilege and was not able or willing, willing to take advantage of it. So these are things that are, we call mysteries. And some people think that mysteries have to stay mysteries, but that's not our human nature. We're very curious. We do want to solve mysteries. And so some people say, well, I'm just willing to live with the fact that I don't understand everything. Well, I don't understand everything, and, and I won't. But I want to, and I want to get the Holy Spirit's take on a lot of things. So holding of the mysteries, he says he reveals his secrets to the king or to the the, the friends of God. So we can know some of these things. So God ultimately, his comment on this matter is that in taking, he takes full responsibility for the responses that he makes, but he makes those responsibilities um, in, uh, as a reflection or in response to our choices, the choices of the creature um, who have a free will. And, you know, a free will, but we're also operating under and locked up under the demonic, under demonic control um, in this world, the God of this world. Um, so God understands the context, um, the mercy of God, um, when the mercy of God is shunned or whenever, wherever it's shunned, um, after it had been first given. God gave it to us first, but because of the fall, because of the confusion, because we fell um, into the hands of justice, um, for the sake of mercy, God has also got to bring justice, but he wants to preserve mercy and his goodness and love and peace and harmony. So God, again, died on the cross and said, whosoever will, um, because he is also compelled to act in accordance with his justice. If mercy is offered first and we reject it, um, the option to enter in, to believe the promises, to receive forgiveness, and the release from the demonic sentences of condemnation and guilt um, have been placed upon us. But if we refuse those and we continue to try to do it ourselves under the burden of the law, um, then if we refuse that, God has no other recourse but to bring justice for the offenses and restitution and, and correction. But it's like this. God is the author, the playwright. He's writing a play. He's writing. He's, he's creating characters. Characters, you know, a playwright writes characters that are good, and he writes the villain. Some of them are going to die. Some of them are going to live. And and the playwright has the freedom to do that. And we don't get mad at the playwright. Say, why did you, why did you do this? Why did you? It's his. It's his story. He has the freedom to create it as he will. Um. But God is the playwright who's written and created characters, and he's put his, in his characters free will. No playwright ever does that. It looks like they're operating out of free will, but it's his will that they're saying. He's written the script, and the script is theirs to say, to live, to do, to whatever, to bring the story to a conclusion, to teach us a moral, the story, whatever. God has given his creatures a real free will to make decisions, to speak words, to move, take actions, whatever they, that we do. And then he has done that. He's put that free will within the context of, of, of 
the devil's world. So we have the devil constantly operating to corrupt the imaginations of men, to operate within um, his agenda, to compel, coerce humans who have been given a free will in God's story, to believe lies about God. Um, And and therefore, there you have it. That's the big, dynamic, ever-changing, ever-critically dangerous mess that we live in. And so if you start losing heart in the fact that God is good and that God is for you and there is a court of justice and that his forgiveness really is the answer to his justice, forgiveness, whosoever will receive, his forgiveness, God's forgiveness is a generous pardon. His forgiveness is his pardon. Something that he gives us freely out of simply our requesting, our calling on him. Um, And so that is, again, then brings us back to his love. But if you and I, I think that one of the worst sins people commit and they don't realize they commit it, is judging God. But God, why? God, I don't get it. God, I'm being good. He'll say, yeah, you're right. You don't get it. There's none good. Say, but God, why did this happen to me? I've been praying. I've been fasting. I've been doing everything. But yeah, you're right. You don't get it. There is a devil who's also challenging your righteousness. And I am here to sanctify you. I'm here to set you apart. I'm here to create in you a great and glorious inheritance, making you like my son, who also suffered, by the way, and plowed through all of the judgments made against him to receive his inheritance. Um, and he said, but God, you know, if you're so good, that's judging God. That's really not walking in the revelation of spiritual warfare, not walking in the context of the court of heaven. Um, he said, but God, I'm suffering. And God says, you're right. All those who live and follow me are going to suffer because the devil hates them. All those, those who live godly in Christ Jesus are going to suffer persecution. But God... It's like we're sheep, like I said, killed all the day long, counted as sheep for the slaughter. Where will there be justice in that? Where will the martyrs and those who were murdered ever receive a true justice if there is no court of heaven? That suffering for righteousness sake that we obviously have been made, uh, used as a declaration of our desire to follow righteousness, where will that be honored? Where will that be acknowledged if not in the court of heaven? So the court of heaven and the spiritual warfare and the context of within which we live, within the context of our free will, God's perfect will, God's permissive will, the devil's hatred of us, the court of heaven is God's final and continuous legal device used to determine the guilt and innocence of all his cre- creation based on, first of all, the laws of commandment, either the law of the commandments or the law of love things that have happened to us, those who are committed to following God, will be rewarded either in this world or in that. Jesus said even in the, the world to come, you know, even in this world we'll have lands and families and whatnot, whatever you give up, you'll have. And you know what? The best thing, the most important and powerful thing you can do in your life is thank God, be grateful, rejoice. Take what he gives you with great gratitude, and that will heal your body. That will heal your mind. That will protect you from the indictments and accusations of the devil that you're judging God. If you eat your food with joy and gladness, you thank him for the day, you bless him and walk in it, um, then you are truly, with every step, every word, every breath, basically declaring, I'm on God's side. I'm on God's side. I'm on God's side. God is good. God is with me. God's got it. I'm not questioning God's goodness. The devil is the one who puts that temptation to doubt the goodness of God or make you feel like maybe God doesn't love you or he's forgotten about you, again, bring you into an agreement with the enemy, the lie, to judge God that he has forgotten you, that he isn't with you, that he's, this is too big for God, that it's never going to change. That is a lie. Everything changes. Everything is going to change. And the problem is you take the bowl of soup because you believe nothing's ever going to change, so i got to have what I can get right now. And take it while I can, 
eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. When Jesus says, yeah, you know, eat, drink, and, and, and be merry for tomorrow, he says when tomorrow comes, as it was in the days of Noah, it will be again in the days of the coming of the Son of Man. And as they were eating, drinking, marrying, and giving in marriage, and knew not until the flood came. They had no idea. No idea, people. Some people are waking up. I think some are waking up and starting to buy, store up food and buy guns. And But let's wake up to the promises. Let's wake up to the fact that there is a final end to all this. And I would really, you know, what's, you know, five minutes of pleasure compared to um, forever in pain and hell? There's no, there's no point to it. You know, don't deny God. Even if you did those five minutes of pleasure and you sinned immensely, beyond all that you can even pardon yourself, just say, Lord, have mercy on me. I am a sinner. And he knows why you sinned. He knows more about it than you do. He knows everything about it. So if you just acknowledge that you sinned and say, Lord, have mercy on me, guess what? The sin doesn't count against you anymore. If you receive the forgiveness of God, that's the key. Can you forgive yourself? Um, so there's only one thing left to do, and really that is to continue to walk with God, knowing that there is a court, knowing that we can go to court, knowing that we can present our case. We can appear before. He says, come boldly before the throne of grace and mercy. I believe that's part of the court, the, the, the appeals court. You go in there and say, I got, I need help, Lord. I'm, I got this going on. So does God make deals with the devil? I would say, no, the devil is trying to make deals with God. And the devil constantly is presenting his case, which then forces God. Well, God is not forced, but, but God, you know what? Um, it's just like, just like family again. One member of the family is doing something that is so evil and corruptive and mean and vile and out of order that it forces the parent to act, you know, um, it's not that the parent is, well, I think in human, humanly speaking, sometimes parents do try to make deals with their naughty children, bribe them, reward them. But in God's justice, he doesn't make deals with the devil. God cannot be tempted by evil. Neither does he. So the devil is not really able to tempt God, but God is having to deal with him. God is having to deal with the devil's horrible, insidious attacks against God's creation. So God is permitting what he permits to keep his promises. Um, and that's the will of God that he, that none should perish and that he gives mankind. He even gives in the second, you know, God, he, God gives mankind and the angels the right to some of the angels, the devils, the freedom to act, to choose, to decide, to declare, deny, disobey and reject and walk away from his love. Why is all this going on? Because God is love. And God wants love. He wants to, He gave you a free will so you could choose yes, no, I want it, I don't want it. Does this lavish and risky bestowing of freedom on his creatures, on his creation, because he's a God of love, make God unfit to rule and unfair in his final judgments? I don't think so. We are not going to judge God for injustices because if we are, then I don't really want to go to heaven if that's where he is. And, but God is love, and we know this. So don't judge God or make him um, the, 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 ex, the excuse for your sin or the blunt of your anger, um, but know that God is love, and we will not find fault with the Lord God because he's a God of love. Love does not mean anything to those who are not forgiven, but it is forgiveness for those who are condemned. It is everything for those who are being rescued. So, Father God, thank you. This is complicated, but it's not because it's all about you and your love and that you're good. And we can keep it simple and know that and know that you have an enemy that you have to deal with every day to protect us. Even when we make stupid, silly choices, and agreements. So God, I pray today that you'd send the revelation of Jesus Christ so that we would not make 
stupid, silly choices and that we would repent, receive forgiveness, receive grace, mercy, and eternal life. Be blessed, you guys. Rejoice. This is way bigger than you, so you might as well relax, love God, and be happy in him. Amen. Have a wonderful week. We'll talk to you next week. I have an emergency. What is your location? for your